you. I was here about a year ago, and uh, it's great to be back. Um, as was mentioned, I teach at Emmaus Bible College in Dubuque, and uh, it'll be my privilege to talk to uh, the youth group a little bit about Emmaus after this morning. Been getting over a cold this week, uh, but my my voice didn't get the memo. So uh, bear with me as we proceed this morning. As we as we gather and and open our Bibles, uh, think with me about a very basic question: What is Christianity about? If you were to ask the average person in the Midwest. They might, might say something like, well, Christianity is about family values, or it's about being a good person. I hope we'd run into someone who would say, Christianity is about the good news of Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead to offer us forgiveness and eternal life. If you were to ask the average secular person, let's say in New York City or or maybe San Francisco, you'd probably get some very different answers. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> they would probably say something like, well, Christianity is all about being narrow-minded and hateful and bigoted. As I studied our, our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning, and I'd invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles, I was struck by the picture it gives us of, of genuine Christianity on display. First, we see how these believers, the Thessalonians, heard the, the message of the gospel and it was pressed home to their, their hearts and their consciences, so they embraced it not just as another human message, but as the word of God to them. And that transformed their lives. They embraced the word of God they lived under its truth and its authority to the point where they were even willing to suffer for it. But second, we see genuine Christianity lived out in Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians. He loved them. He cared for them. He served them. He wasn't trying to take advantage of them. They were, he recognized, Christ's church they were the family of God to him, and he loved them. And so I'd like to suggest that the big idea of our passage this morning is this. When God does his gracious work in us, we embrace his word and we love his people. We embrace his word and we love his people. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 20. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as the as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. 
But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we turn to your word now, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work through it and that we would accept it and receive it and welcome it just as the Thessalonians did so long ago, not as the word of men, but as the word of God. And we pray, Lord, that you would do your work in us through that word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just by way of review, in the first part of chapter 2, which I assume you looked at last week, Paul reminds the Thessalonians of his ministry among them. Apparently, some opponents had come in and were trying to discredit Paul, saying, listen, he doesn't care about you. He was just after your money. Uh, Paul was just manipulating you for his own selfish agenda. Now he's gone. You can't trust him. But nothing, of course, could be further from the truth. Paul wasn't after their money. In fact, he worked with his own hands night and day precisely to, to um, avoid many, any misunderstanding that he was after their money. He provided for his own needs through working hard. No, Paul and his team preached the gospel to them with pure motives. He genuinely cared for the Thessalonians. He describes his, his heart for them like, like a parent for children, for, for their children. And he sums it up in, in verse 8. He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. And now in our passage, he's going to go on to commend them for how they received the message that he preached to them. So first of all, embracing the word of God. Look again at verse 13, very significant verse for us. Paul says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Paul had a message for these Thessalonians. He came very intentionally to Thessalonica and he says to them in verse 9, we proclaim to you the gospel of God, the good news that comes from God. In the synagogue, in Acts 17, verse 3, it says in the, in the synagogue in Thessalonica when he first came, it says there in Acts 17, 3, that he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. That was the message he proclaimed to them, that Christ died for their sins, and through faith in him, they could be saved. 
And now Paul is acknowledging here in thir- verse 13, he was, he was grateful that when he gave them that message, they recognized it as coming from God. It was the gospel of God. This wasn't just a, another human message. They could go out into the marketplace and hear the, the, the philosophers of the day and the religious teachers of the day. Those were a dime a dozen. No, they received Paul's message and accepted it and welcomed it for what it really was, the word of God. Now, in the big picture of this letter, Paul is encouraging his readers to hold fast to their new faith. These are still relatively new believers. And they were facing opposition. Paul knew that. He himself had faced it, as we'll see. And he was encouraged that these young believers were doing well so far in the face of opposition, but they needed encouragement to keep pressing on, persevering, because the opposition wasn't going away. And when it continues on and on, it can, it can take the wind out of your sails, you might say. And so Paul reminds them, remember, this gospel of God that I proclaimed, you recognized it and you received it for what it really is. It is the word of God. Don't forget that, Thessalonians. This is the message from your creator. And it's, it's good news. It's, it's the word of life and hope and salvation. You embraced it and you've experienced its transforming power. So don't abandon it when it's not popular. And when opposition rises and persecution comes and scoffers and skeptics ridicule you, this is the word of God, Paul says, hold fast to this. Wow, we need to be reminded of that today, don't we? We need to be reminded of the very same thing because there are so many voices today telling us that we are fools to to heed this book. Whether it's the the new atheists or voices from popular culture telling us that that we need to get with their program. And don't be so narrow-minded and hateful and bigoted. There are all kinds of voices telling us to leave the word of God behind. And just like the Thessalonians, we need to be reminded that, that what we have in Scripture, they had it directly communicated from the apostles. We have it written down in Scripture that this is the very word from God, and it is a life-giving word. Paul can say in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is literally breathed out by God, and it's profitable for, for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. We need God's word to teach us and instruct us. And yes, many times we need it to reprove us and correct us because we're fallen people and we're easily led astray. And so we thank God that he's given us his word and his spirit to call us back and say, this is the way, walk in it. Again, we're well aware that there are many voices today telling us that the Bible is just a, a, a human product. It's a flawed book. It's a product of a backward time, a superstitious age. 
and therefore to grant it any kind of authority on contemporary questions is just intellectually bankrupt. But quite frankly, the, the struggle to, to uphold the Bible as the inspired word of God is not at the end of the day an intellectual struggle. It's a spiritual battle. Listen to what the Bible itself says about people who either accept the word or reject it. In Jeremiah 6, verse 10, the, uh, Yahweh says, Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Jesus confronted the religious leaders of his day in John 8, 43. He says, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. But Jesus says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And the apostle John would write in 1 John 4, 5, and 6, they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In 1949, Billy Graham went through a period of soul-searching, Questions had been raised in his mind about the, the full truthfulness of Scripture. A close friend and, and former ministry partner, Charles Templeton, had turned his back really on the Christian faith and particularly the inspiration of Scripture. And he was, he was pressuring Billy Graham to do the same. Templeton said to him, Billy, you're 50 years you're 50 years out of date. People no longer accept the Bible as being inspired as you do. Your faith is too simple. And those words troubled Billy Graham. And at a retreat center near Los Angeles, Billy Graham took a walk one evening and as he was wrestling with these things. And at one point, he, he took his, his Bible and he laid it on a tree stump and he got down on his knees and he prayed. He said, there are things, Lord, I don't understand and I can't answer all of Chuck's objections. But I accept by faith that this is the inspired word. This is your inspired word. And he went on to speak of the tremendous freedom that came from that. And he testified to the, the power and conviction and blessing that characterized his preaching because it was rooted in the authority of Scripture. If you have ever heard Billy Graham preach, you know he, he constantly repeats the phrase, he repeated the phrase, the Bible says, the Bible says. Every generation must face the question, Will we believe the Bible? That's the great question. What will be the authority that governs your life? Will it be the wisdom of the world? The latest cultural trends? Whatever is buzzing on social media? Or will your authority be anchored in the God-breathed Bible? the word of God that's profitable for every dimension of life. The Thessalonians 
accepted the apostolic message for what it really was, the word of God, and it transformed their lives. Paul refers to it at the end of verse 13 as as the word of God which is at work in you believers. The Holy Spirit does a work in us, changes us through this book. The author to the Hebrews says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So let me ask you this, is the word of God at work in your life? Do you accept it not as the word of men, but as the word of God? You see, what allowed the Thessalonians and what will allow us in in our day, in this moment, to stand firm in the face of opposition is the conviction that, that this is the word of God and therefore it is the supreme authority that guides and informs everything we do. Let me go a step further and encourage you not only to, to accept it, but to use the, the language of Psalm 1 to, to delight in it, to meditate on it day and night, live in this, in this book, and let, the, let its truth and power teach you and correct you and transform you and reveal to you the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, that's the greatest blessing of all. It's not just a a list of rules that we follow. This this book reveals God to us. And, And through meditating on it, through receiving it, we come to know God. We come to see more of Christ, more of his beauty, because he ultimately is the word. And he speaks to us and he meets us through his written word. When Paul preached the gospel of God to the Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 9 says, they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. They met God through his word. So so cling to this book. Cling to this word from God. But secondly, we'll notice in our text that embracing the word of God brings opposition. Verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Welcoming the gospel as the word of God came with a price for the Thessalonians. It brought upon them opposition and hostility from their own people, their their countrymen, no doubt their families and their neighbors. But of course, this wasn't unique to them. Paul, Paul reminds them that actually they were imitating the believers in Judea. They experienced the same thing, and it's been happening ever since. For Paul, this, this opposition that they were facing and their willingness to suffer for it was evidence of the genuineness of their faith, and he commended them for it. You see, wherever God does a work in a people, there is, there will be opposition. That's, that's, that's no secret. 
the, the prosperity gospel will never tell you that, but Jesus tells us that. And Paul, in his, in his last letter, he said to Timothy, all who desire to live, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will what? Get rich? No, will be persecuted. When the gospel takes root in our lives, it transforms us, but that transformation brings us into collision with the unbelieving world around us. And for some believers, we're aware that this means persecution. And that was the case for the Thessalonians, just as it was for the Jewish Christians who were living in Judea. You'll notice that that leads Paul to reflect on on Jewish persecution. They had rejected the word of Christ. Think of the many encounters the Lord Jesus had with the Pharisees in the Gospels who who plotted again and again to kill him, and and they killed him. In the history of Israel, the Lord sent prophets, but they time and time again rejected the prophets. And and in Paul's day, they they were trying to hinder Paul from bringing the gospel to the Gentiles so that the Gentiles might be saved. Now, it's very important to understand that Paul is not being anti-Semitic here. He speaks in Romans chapters 9 through 11 of of the great sorrow he has for his his fellow countrymen, the the Jews. He, He loved them. He had a deep longing for them to be saved. He also taught very clearly that the Lord isn't done with the Jews. He says in Romans chapter 11 verse 26, all Israel will be saved. But when they hardened their hearts against the Lord Jesus, it's true. They plotted to kill him. That's just a historical fact. And when the prophets spoke the word of the Lord condemning their sins, they rejected the prophets. And when Paul came to Thessalonica and and the Jews saw people coming to Christ, Acts 17 says, they were jealous and they stirred up persecution and they opposed the gospel everywhere Paul went. But hear, once, hear this once again, that this, is, this reaction is not unique to the Jews. It's not a Jewish problem, it's a human problem. Every human heart, the Bible is honest enough to tell us, is corrupt because of our sin. We don't want God. We don't want to listen to his word. We resist him in our sinfulness. We go our own way. The Jews had their hand in the death of Jesus, but so did the Romans. And you know what? So did each of us. Because he went to the cross for my sin and for yours. Historically, the Jews often rejected the message of the prophets. But but look at the hostility to Christ and and to the word of God in our day from secular non-Jewish people. In Paul's day, the Jews opposed the gospel, but... Today, so do Americans, so do Europeans, so do Asians, and on and on. You see, it's a, it's a universal, sinful tendency to resist and to reject the truth of God. And Paul reminds us in verse 16 at the end there that if we continue on like that, God's judgment will come upon us unless unless we become imitators of the 
the Thessalonians and embraced the word of, of God, the gospel of God as, as good news, as not the word of men, but as the very truth of God to us to rescue us from our sin and to save us. And, and when the Holy Spirit does that work of grace in our hearts, he opens our eyes, he opens our ears so that we hear the word proclaimed and we stop resisting it. We see that this is exactly what I need. Jesus is the Savior for me. I see that. That's precisely what happened to Paul himself. You remember, he had been persecuting Christians. He had rejected Christ until that momentous day when Jesus met him on the Damascus Road. He heard the, the word of Christ and he recognized, he had to inquire, but he recognized that this was the word of Christ. And, and spiritual, after a period of blindness, literal blindness, spiritual scales fell from his eyes and he was transformed. And now he is no longer persecuting Christians. He was, in fact, himself willing to suffer for the sake of this gospel of God. What a transformation. What about you? Where do you stand in relation to the message of God, the gospel? Where do you stand in relation to the word of God? Maybe you're not hostile to it. But frankly, you're not all that excited about it either. You're certainly not interested in facing any opposition for it. And if you're honest, it's, it's maybe not the, the authority in your life. If you find yourself in, in that position this morning, look at the Thessalonians. They were once just going with the flow too. They followed the idols of their day and their culture until the word of God broke into their lives. And, and they turned from those dead things. They saw them for what they were, things that, that might be accepted and popular, but things that aren't true and things that are destructive to our lives in the long run. And now the word of God came to them and, and they've turned from their idols to serve the living and true God. And now they have something to live for, something that's true and real, something that is so real, something that they were created for so that now they're willing to suffer for it. Their faith is the real deal and it stands up in the midst of hardship and even persecution. What about you? Have, have you come to know the living and true God so that, that now you want to be faithful to Christ, even if that means being shunned and, and ridiculed or even worse? The Thessalonians, that was their experience, and I am absolutely convinced that they would tell you it, it was worth it. It is worth it. That was Paul's testimony. You remember what he said in Philippians 3? Whatever gain I had in the world, I count as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Well, Paul commended the Thessalonians 
And now in the final section of our text, he returns to emphasize his relationship with them. And, and what we see here is Paul's genuine pastoral heart for people, his love, his genuine love for people, loving God's people. Look at verses 17 through 20. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Several years ago, Christianity Today carried a cover story on how the prosperity gospel is taking Africa by storm. Large congregations are led by charismatic pastors who model wealth and, and promise it to their listeners if they only have enough faith. One pastor, Felix Amobud, promises a, loud, a large crowd that some will buy new cars, women will find themselves husbands, and the barren will give birth to twins. But to open themselves to this kind of blessing, the crowd is encouraged to give $200 each. Now, a local school teacher only earns 150 a month. So that amount is significant. But within minutes, the church takes in $60,000. How different was the ministry of the Apostle Paul among the Thessalonians? Again, he wasn't after their money. He wasn't trying to exploit them in any way. He had a genuine affection for them, as this passage so clearly shows. As I've mentioned, we have the account of Paul's first visit to uh, Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, and, and we learn there that, that people were beginning to come to Christ and they were being saved. This church was planted. I don't think Luke gives us all the details of, of that visit, but nevertheless, not long into it, the opponents were stirring up trouble for Paul and Silas. They said, these people who have turned the world upside down have, co have come to come here also. And so they, they drove them out of town before their mission was done. And so Paul says here in verse 17, we were, we were torn away from you. It was a painful separation. They didn't want to leave. Commentator Gordon Fee says, Paul uses one of the more me remarkable metaphors in all his letters here. That the word, it's... it's uh, translated in the ESV as torn away. The word means to be made an orphan. Earlier in, the, in this chapter, he referred to his parental love for them. Another commentator explains, unlike the modern term, the word orphan could refer to the child who had lost his or her parents or the parents who were bereft of their, ch their child with the pain of this loss at the forefront. That's the metaphor that Paul is using here of him leaving Thessalonica. And so he didn't want them to think that, that he had abandoned them, that, that's, that circumstances had changed and, and he moved on to other things. No, 
his heart was still very much with them. He wanted to see them. He tried to come to them again and again, but verse 17 says, Satan hindered us. You see, Paul was, was very aware that there was a great spiritual battle going on to hinder the progress of the gospel. It was behind the, the persecution that drove Paul out of Thessalonica and prevented him from coming back, and it's what stands behind all the opposition to the word of God that we face in our day. But never forget, Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And despite opposition and persecution, there was a thriving church in Thessalonica who stood firm for Christ, who were willing to be, who were willing to be persecuted and, and to suffer for their faith. And people throughout Macedonia and Achaia and, and beyond were hearing about this. So despite the, the painful separation and the setbacks, Paul nevertheless kept looking forward. And in verses 19 and 20, he reminded himself and he reminded them that there's coming a day that when there will be a great reunion. Believers will never be separated again. When Christ returns, the struggles of this life won't be worth comparing with the glory that we will experience, that will be revealed to us in Christ. And the presence of, of these believers in glory is Paul's reward because he was the one that God had raised up to bring the gospel to them. But it would also add to his joy as he saw them there in glory worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ that only multiplied his own joy because uh, they had received the gospel of God not as the word of men but as the word of God. We need to keep our, our minds and our hearts fixed on that perspective. What a hope we have. What a hope we have. As we close, it's remarkable to see the transformation, not only in the Thessalonians, but also in Paul himself. Remember, he went, to, he went from being the most intense opponent of Christianity, the most intense persecutor of the church, to now loving God's people so deeply. When he was torn from them, it, it, it broke his heart. It broke his heart that he wasn't able to return to them. It was like he had been orphaned. Do we care for the church like that? Do we love one another and, and minister to one another like that? Like we are a family? You know, I know that happens here at Bethany. And I praise God for that. What a beautiful thing. But Paul actually prays for them in, in verse chapter 3, verse 12, that, that, the, that uh, he says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for, for one another and for all as we do. Yeah, you're doing well, but, but go on more and more. Love one another and have this heart for one another. That's a good thing to pray for one another in the church. 
But there's also an application and a challenge in Paul's example for anyone in leadership in the church. Listen to how one writer puts it. What an example Paul provides for Christian workers in every age. And what a rebuke he offers those who serve coldly out of duty, doing their minimal tasks without regard for anything but their own interests. The Christian church needs pastors, elders, leaders, and members who care deeply for people. That's genuine Christianity on display when we love one another and we stand together in the face of a culture that rejects the word of God. So may, may the Lord continue to do his gracious work in us and here at Bethany so that we embrace his word, we live under its authority, and we love one another deeply. Let's pray. Father, how thankful we are for your word that again, it's not merely the word of men, it is your word to us, and it is a good word. It is a life-giving word. It is a transforming word because it is the word of Christ, the one who gave himself for us to redeem us, to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his, your own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us to stand for you in this age that we find ourselves in and bind our hearts together in love for one another. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.